Chapter Twenty Six of the Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter Twenty Six: Chemistry and Electricity. If the reader has had the patience to accompany us thus far, he will have learned that chemistry, so far from being an isolated system of facts, is intimately related to many other departments of scientific activity. The chemist has something to tell us about agriculture, about the composition of the stars, about the relation of animals and plants to the atmosphere, about the physiology of nutrition, and other diverse matters. Especially when one considers the modern applications of science to industry and manufactures, does the all-pervading influence of chemistry become apparent, for in the most unexpected quarters chemical changes are utilized and made to contribute to the requirements and comforts of life. It is not surprising to find that the bearing of chemistry on other branches of science has led to development of special study on the borderland of chemistry. Hence it comes that there is nowadays such specialization as is indicated by the names agricultural chemistry, physical chemistry, and biochemistry. Another lateral branch of the science with a double-barreled name is electrochemistry, a subject which is of vast importance at the present time not only from the point of view of the pure scientist, but also from that of the man who is mainly interested in applied science. The relation between chemistry and electricity is one of mutual indebtedness. It is a long time now since Volta first showed how chemical forces might be utilized in the production of an electric current, how chemical energy might be converted into electrical energy. The chemical cell which Volta constructed consisted merely of a plate of copper, C, and a plate of zinc, Z, immersed in water to which a little sulfuric acid had been added. Volta found that if the two plates were joined by a wire outside the liquid, that an electric current passed through the wire. The electric current obtained from such a cell is not manufactured out of nothing. There is a quid pro quo. While the cell is running and producing current, chemical changes are going on, which means a lowering of the store of energy in the cell. As has been pointed out by the author of The Romance of Modern Electricity, this is exactly analogous to what happens in the case of a grandfather's clock. The store of energy in the clock weights, at any time, depends on the height to which they have been wound by muscular force, and the driving of the clockwork for any given time is possible only at the cost of so much of the energy residing in the weights. They will be lower down at the end of the period than they were at the beginning. Similarly, we can get a current out of a chemical cell only in so far as chemical changes go on which lower the amount of available energy in the cell. The nature of the changes which may thus be utilized in the production of an electric current are very well illustrated by reference to the Daniel cell, which is only slightly different from Volta's original one. The metals in the Daniel cell are the same as those in Volta's cell, zinc and copper. But instead of being immersed in acidulated water, the zinc plate dips in a solution of sulfate of zinc and the copper plate in a solution of sulfate of copper. The two solutions are prevented from mixing by a partition of porous earthenware, generally in the form of a cylindrical pot, inside which is the zinc sulfate and the zinc pole of the cell, and round which is the sulfate of copper solution with the copper pole. In the form of Daniel's cell represented in the diagram, the copper pole is replaced by a copper pot which holds the copper sulfate solution. If now the zinc pole is connected with the copper pole by means of a wire, an electric current runs through this wire from the copper to the zinc. 
The passing of a current is evidence that work is being done by the cell, and the question therefore arises, what is the source of the energy? In the grandfather's clock, the equivalent for the driving of the works is found in the gradual fall of the weights, a fairly obvious phenomenon. But a cursory inspection of the Daniel cell does not reveal any marked change which might be regarded as responsible for the electric current. Closer examination, however, shows that the current has been obtained only at the expense of certain alterations in the cell. If, before allowing the cell to run, say, for an hour, we were to weigh the two poles, then, on weighing them afterwards, we should find that the zinc pole had become lighter and the copper pole heavier. Further, we should add that the solution round the zinc pole contained more sulphate of zinc than at the start, and that the solution in contact with the copper pole had lost some of its copper sulphate. The changes, then, which occur during the production of the current are, one, the disappearance of some of the zinc to form zinc sulphate, and two, the deposition of copper on the other pole from the copper sulphate. All this might be represented very simply in the following way. Zinc plus copper sulphate going to copper plus zinc sulphate, the arrow indicating that the substances on the left are replaced by the substances named on the right. This may strike the reader as somewhat quite novel, but as a matter of fact a chemical change of exactly the same kind has already been considered in earlier chapters. One thing which, as was pointed out, served to support the alchemist's belief in the transmutation of metals was the observation that when a clean steel knife blade has been dipped into a solution of copper sulphate, it looks as if it had been converted into copper. Things, however, are not always what they seem, and careful investigation has shown, one, that the formation of copper is only superficial, and two, that in exchange for the copper which has spontaneously settled on the blade, a certain quantity of iron has passed into solution as sulphate of iron. The change might in fact be represented as follows. Iron plus copper sulphate goes to copper plus iron sulphate. Now something exactly similar happens when a piece of zinc is employed instead of the knife blade. If we were to put a few bits of zinc foil in a solution of copper sulphate and leave them for some time, we should find that they had entirely disappeared, and that in their place a spongy mass of metallic copper lay at the bottom of the solution. This simple little experiment shows that the change zinc plus copper sulphate going to copper plus zinc sulphate is one which takes place spontaneously. A little reflection will convince the reader that the forces which bring about any spontaneous natural change can, if properly harnessed, be made to do work of various kinds. The force of gravitation, under the influence of which an unsupported body falls to the ground, is harnessed for the service of man in innumerable ways, as, for instance, in the grandfather's clock. The conversion of quicklime plus water into slaked lime is a change which takes place spontaneously, and, as we have seen in an earlier chapter, is accompanied by a considerable increase in bulk. The force of this expansion has occasionally been utilized in blasting coal, by the simple device of packing quicklime into a hole in the coal and moistening it with water. The chemical forces set to work immediately, and the mechanical force of the expansion which accompanies the reaction suffices to split the coal apart. The Daniel cell is another illustration of this same general principle. It is simply a device whereby the spontaneous chemical change zinc plus copper sulfate going to copper plus zinc sulfate is harnessed and made to do work. The chemical energy of the cell is converted into electrical energy, as evidenced by the production of an electric current. Besides the reaction which has just been discussed, there are many others which have been similarly harnessed. 
Among the better-known electrical cells, which, like the Daniel cell, are devices for transforming the energy of a chemical reaction into electrical energy, are the Grove cell, the bichromate cell, and the Le Clanchet cell. Another very common form in which chemical energy is stored, ready for conversion into electrical energy, is the secondary cell or accumulator, sometimes called a storage cell. This is a sort of artificial chemical cell, and when complete, consists of two lead plates immersed in dilute sulfuric acid, one of the plates, however, being specially prepared and coated with peroxide of lead. In this condition, the cell is a store of chemical energy, and when the plates or poles are connected by a wire, a current passes through the latter from the peroxide plate to the lead plate. If much current is taken out of the secondary cell, it gets run down, like the weights in the grandfather's clock. But like these, it can be wound up again. This is done by passing through the cell, say from a dynamo, a current of electricity in the opposite direction to that of the current which the cell itself yields. The result of this is to put into the cell a fresh supply of electrical energy, which is there stored as chemical energy ready for immediate use. From what has been said, it will be plain that chemistry has made some very important contributions to the development and application of electricity. This debt, however, has been amply repaid, and anyone who studies the modern development of chemistry will be struck with the part which electricity now plays in the chemical world. As was said at the beginning of the chapter, the relationship between chemistry and electricity is one of mutual indebtedness. We have seen how chemical changes have been utilized in the production of electrical energy. Suppose we glance now at one or two of the ways in which electricity has contributed to the advance of chemical knowledge and practice. It will be found that some of the most recent achievements of industrial chemistry have been rendered possible only by the cooperation of the chemist and the electrical engineer. It must be remembered that in some cases the electric current has been used only indirectly in order to bring about chemical changes. It is a familiar fact, illustrated by the common electric glow lamp, that the passage of a current through any body produces heat. The greater the opposition offered by the body to the passage of the electricity, the more intense is the heat generated by a given current. If, therefore, we employ very powerful currents and pass them through bodies which offer a stout resistance, an enormous amount of heat is generated, and a very high temperature is reached, much higher, in fact, than is attainable by any ordinary means. Many substances which are usually quite indifferent to each other react readily at such high temperatures, so that the electric current, merely by its heating action, has been extremely useful in extending the chemist's field of knowledge. Some of the interesting facts which have thus been discovered at the high temperature of the electric furnace have already been described in Chapter 17. It is, however, not only by virtue of its heating effect that the electric current has been of service to the chemical discoverer and manufacturer. It has a remarkable power of splitting up compounds into simpler parts, provided it is applied to these compounds while they are either in the dissolved or the molten condition. The value of the electric current for this purpose was demonstrated by the famous English chemist Sir Humphrey Davy, who succeeded in showing that potash and soda which up to the time of his experiments had been regarded as elements, were really compounds. It was by passing an electric current through fused caustic potash that Davy first obtained potassium, a metal which is so ready to interact with air and moisture that it can be preserved only under naphtha. Potassium has the consistency of hard butter, and it may easily be cut with a knife. The clean, fresh surface of the metal obtained by cutting is quite shiny, but it rapidly tarnishes, owing to the action of air and moisture. 
When a small piece of potassium is thrown into water, hydrogen gas and caustic potash are immediately generated, and the heat of the reaction is so intense that the hydrogen catches fire. The pouring on of water, therefore, a process which is usually associated with the extinction of fire, may in some cases actually lead to the production of flame. Sodium, the metal which Sir Humphrey Davy first isolated from caustic soda by the action of the electric current, is very similar to potassium, but rather less active. The decomposing action of the electric current is known as electrolysis, and soon after Davy's time another famous English investigator, Michael Faraday, discovered the laws which govern this phenomenon. He showed that when two wires connected with the poles of a battery were immersed in a solution of a salt, or the fused salt itself, decomposition took place, with the result that the metallic part of the salt was liberated at one wire, the cathode, and the acidic part of the salt at the other wire, the anode. Investigation indeed has shown that the passage of an electric current through a salt solution consists in a general movement of the metallic part towards the cathode and a general movement of the acidic part in the opposite direction, but most obvious to the onlooker is what happens at the wires or electrodes. What the observer sees taking place at the electrodes is sometimes only the secondary, not the direct, result of electrolysis. For instance, if we were to pass a current through a solution of common salt or sodium chloride to give it the systematic chemical name, the metallic part of the salt, the sodium, would be liberated primarily at the cathode. Any particle of sodium, however, which was thus liberated, would immediately be set upon by the surrounding water molecules, hydrogen gas would be evolved, and caustic soda would be formed in solution around the cathode. The action of water on sodium prevents our obtaining this metal by the electrolysis of an aqueous solution of any sodium salt. Sometimes the wire or plate which forms the anode is attacked and dissolved by the acidic part of the salt which is being electrolyzed. An interesting example of this is furnished by the electrolysis of a solution of copper sulfate between copper electrodes. During this process, the metallic part of the salt, the copper, is deposited on the cathode, which therefore becomes gradually heavier. The sulfate, or acidic part of the salt, instead of being liberated at the copper anode, attacks it, forming copper sulfate, which dissolves in the water. So the net result of the electrolysis is that copper is transferred from the anode to the cathode, the latter increasing in weight exactly as fast as the former becomes lighter. This simple operation is really of very great technical importance, for the greater part of the world's supply of copper is refined on the same principle. Plates of the impure copper, which comes from the smelter, are used as anodes in baths of acidified copper sulfate, while sheets of pure copper act as the cathodes. When a current is passed through such a bath, the anode is gradually dissolved, as already described, and pure copper is deposited on the cathode. The impurities in the anode either pass into the solution and remain there, or else settle down to the bottom of the bath as a sort of sludge. The small quantities of gold and silver which are present in crude copper are thus deposited in the sludge, which is worked up for the sake of these valuable metals, after the electrolysis is over. It is estimated that in the United States alone about 250,000 tons of copper are refined every year by this electrolytic process, 27 million ounces of silver, and 346,000 ounces of gold being obtained as by-products from the sludge. Electrolysis, however, is applied not only in the purification of metals, which have been produced by smelting, but in obtaining the metals themselves from their compounds. Aluminum furnishes the best example of this operation, for nowadays it is obtained exclusively 
by the electrolysis of alumina, the oxide of the metal. This material is found in various forms and in great abundance on the surface of the earth, but if it is to be employed in the electrolytic production of aluminum, it must first be purified and separated from the dross which accompanies it in the natural state. The mineral which is used in this country as a source of alumina is bauxite, obtainable in large quantities in the southeast of France. When pure alumina has been prepared from bauxite, it is dissolved in a bath of molten cryolite, a Greenland mineral, and subjected to the decomposing action of an electric current. Electrolysis takes place quietly at a temperature of about 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, with the result that the aluminum from the alumina is separated at the cathode and the oxygen goes to the anode. The latter is made of carbon, and at the comparatively high temperature which prevails, it combines with the oxygen from the alumina and passes away as gaseous carbon monoxide. The metal, on the other hand, collects at the bottom of the bath in the molten condition and is run off from time to time. There are some very interesting points about the production of aluminum in this country. As already stated, the raw materials of the industry, the bauxite and the cryolite, are obtained from France and Greenland, respectively. The bauxite is purified in Ireland, where also, by the way, this mineral is to be found, while the actual production of the metal is carried on in some of the most outlying parts of Great Britain. We usually associate metallurgical processes, such as tin and iron smelting, with busy centers of population, and it may seem strange that in order to find aluminum works we must go to the remote Scottish highlands. For this curious circumstance, however, there is a very sufficient explanation. Even the non-technical reader will perceive that in order to produce aluminum cheaply, it is absolutely necessary to have inexpensive power for the dynamos, which yield the electric current. Now the cheapest way of driving a dynamo is to utilize water power. This can be done on a large scale only where there is a big waterfall, or where there is an adequate reservoir constantly replenished from natural sources. So far as this country is concerned, these conditions are best realized in the highlands of Scotland, and hence it comes that the aluminum industry is located at Foyers, in Invernessshire, and at Kinlochleven on the borders of Argyllshire and Invernessshire. The water of the reservoir erected at the latter place is carried in a conduit to a point near the factory, about 900 feet above it. From this point, the water is run down to the turbines and pipes, 39 inches in diameter. Our scientific forefathers, could they see it, would regard this new feature of the landscape with much curiosity. They would not understand what water pipes could possibly have to do with the aluminum industry. Perhaps also, when the present stage of scientific development has long passed away, our far-off descendants will puzzle themselves over the ruins of these outlying industrial centers, much as we today endeavor to read the riddle of Druidical and Roman remains. End of chapter 26